You're listening to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and best moments in life, a place where we get a chance to hear from people who are creating a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. This is a place for connection, to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today on Making Our Way, we're talking to Michael Losapio. Michael is a teacher and a coach and a dad of two sweet boys, Mikey and Reed. Michael was a three-sport athlete in high school and a successful runner in college. He even qualified for the Olympic time trials and ran professionally for a number of years. His life was centered around athletics, around physical ability and speed and endurance. But that centering, that focus changed for Michael when not one, but both of his sons were diagnosed with a degenerative muscle disease. The disease will steal their ability to run and even to walk. And although being just six and eight years old right now, they're both still on their feet, Michael lives with the real possibility that they won't always be. So I know Michael because our sons have the same disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Michael's always impressed me with his positive approach, and he's accepted what he can't change, but he has this incredible grace and determination to change what he can. So when he was faced with the heartbreak as a dad who couldn't fix his boys, Michael made a decision to build the best life possible for them. And he did it in a really unconventional way. He bought a farm. That's right. He bought a farm. (laughs) So with no background in working the land or raising livestock, he just rolled up his sleeves and dug in, moving with his boys to a farm in Delaware. He stepped way out of his comfort zone, and he did it because of love. So shortly after he entered this new, what was an unknown world of Duchenne for him, he entered the unknown world of farming. His love for his boys led him to focusing on a love of land and nature. His story is a story of faith and family and love, navigating a devastating diagnosis, a disease that would not allow his kids to follow in his path as an athlete. But it did lead Michael to create a life where his kids could follow in the path he chose as their dad, the path, as Michael describes it, of choosing love. I hope you enjoy this conversation with him as much as I did. Michael, hi, it is so good to have you here. I'm so glad you're on with us. Marisa, I'm honored. Thank you. We're going to jump right in. I know I've heard you say that your greatest joy in life is being a dad to your two boys. So tell me a little bit about him. Talk to us about why that is for you and who your boys are. Sure. So... I always tell people, first and foremost, I'm the proud dad of uh, Mikey and Reed, and they are six and eight years old, and both boys are living with and hopefully conquering uh, what's called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, and that's a terminal muscle wasting disease, and traditionally boys 
are non-ambulatory by the time they're in their teenage years and early death in the late teens to early 20s. Advances in science have been pushing it out a little farther. It's, it's a difficult pill to swallow getting both boys diagnosed with that. But with their illness comes some great, great pain. But also over the years, it's brought me some actually great realizations, uh, great joy. And I've met amazing people along our journey. And I've been given this kind of terrible uh, set of cards, uh, I guess the boys have as well in life. But I've learned and I've been told by a lot of people, it's how you play the deck of cards that you've been given. And Duchenne has helped me realize that, that I can change and adapt and have fun. And I always tell people I always choose love in all of our situations. So having both of the boys with this terrible muscle wasting disease has really opened up my eyes, not just how to live, but how to really live well. So Michael, you didn't always have this disease as a teacher, so to speak, because you knew you knew life before Duchenne. Take me back a little bit into that before you knew that Mikey and Reed had Duchenne. Yeah, so growing up, uh, I grew up in northern New Jersey. I played every sport under the sun. I went to LaSalle University in Philadelphia. I had great successes there and had opportunities to run nationally and internationally. I, I had you know opportunities to be some of the top runner in the uh, NCAA and move on to great things of, you know, playing golf and baseball with my buddies, getting married and having two kids and imagining those scenes of a kind of an L.L. Bean catalog in the background of, you know, us jumping in the leaves and playing catch with my sons in the backyard. All those dreams that you have and those visions, it all came crashing down on what uh, most Duchenne parents and I'm sure most rare disease parents call as diagnosis day, where the doctor tells you that, Without kind of saying it, they just say, well, you know, the life that you have is, you know, still there, but their life is going to be completely different. I think I went through every stage of grief just over and over again of like being angry and upset. And, you know, I think every parent would you know, almost barter kind of with whatever, whatever deity you believe in or the universe or stars or however things work, you kind of beg to trade places with your kids and then you come to that realization that, you know, this, this is it. This is the life that I have, and I have two options. So I could, I could make it really, really awesome, or I could retreat in the opposite direction. So I had all these visions of, like, my sons, you know, being these star athletes and stuff. And then it's like, well, you know what? There's millions of things that kids can do, and, you know, not being known as an athlete isn't the end of the world. So luckily my sons are really into lots of other activities, and we, we really make the best of it. Let's pause on that for a second, though, because you and I know each other because we both have boys with Duchenne. And so I went through that, you know, diagnosis day, diagnosis week, diagnosis month, you know, everything that comes after it. It's interesting you said you went through all the stages of grief when they were diagnosed. Do you remember the first thing you felt if you, if you just paused and kind of maybe close your eyes and take yourself back to that moment? when you heard those words. Do you remember anything about it? Ooh, that's a heavy, that's a heavy question. <laughs> I just remember saying over and over again, why? I desperately wanted an answer of why. I'm like a fixer in life. And for like once in my life, I couldn't fix it. Yeah, I understand that. You're going to tell us a little bit about how you've embraced this and what you've done with it, which is absolutely amazing. 
But do you feel now like that you've been in this world of this this crazy, tumultuous Dushan world for a while? Do you feel like now maybe maybe you've you have fixed it a little bit? I would say I've adapted to be able to fully enjoy life the exact same as I would if this afternoon I had a, a station wagon or minivan filled with baseball cleats and bats or like golf clubs or soccer balls. I think I would be having the exact same enjoyment in life as I would. We live on a small farm now. My sons love planting things and they love gardening. And we got these things called pine berries. It's strawberry, but it's white and it tastes like a pineapple. And I'm like, what? So they are super excited. I said, you know, I, I got to bribe them. Guys, if you go to school today and you're really good, you get to come home and plant the uh, new strawberry plants that came in. <laughs> so I think, yeah, definitely that. I've adapted and fixed it that it's Duchenne is always on my mind. Every question or every step or every, you know, project in the house or just going outside, it's always on my mind. But I think I've fixed it enough that we we can adapt. So that didn't happen by accident. And your boy's love for farming and nature and being really excited about the plants that you're going to bring home today, you chose that, you designed that, you came up with that, and you ended up living on a farm, which is not how you grew up. It's not your background. So when the boys were diagnosed and I had all those kind of visions come crashing down, I thought, geez, what could I do to give them like the most robust and just fun life? And I lived in the city of Wilmington, but across the street was a small park. And every day my sons would want to go outside and just play in the dirt and the leaves and the you know swings and all that stuff. And all summers I ran what I called a self-proclaimed daddy daycare where I'm a high school teacher. So I had all the summers off. So it was just me and the boys just attached at the hip, just doing little adventures. And I had one of those little bicycle toes where I'd put them in the bicycle and ride them three, four miles down the road to another state park. And we'd, you know, go fishing and just all this nature stuff. I thought, geez, these boys would love they would just absolutely love to live on a small little farm. So I kept searching around and around and finally found a place in uh, Townsend, Delaware, and we moved. And I remember pulling in and the people left their uh, 12 chickens there. I did not know that was going to happen. And they left two... two, two <laughs> a welcome <bar> gift. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what's this? And uh, two barn cats they left for us. I thought, geez, here we go. I grew up in northern New Jersey in classic like suburbia, a small little town. And I had no clue what I was doing. I, I had a dog growing up, but that was my extent of farming. So I quickly got a degree from YouTube. I uh, just researched. <laughs> yep, I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, researched anything I could. And now we have, uh, oh, geez, right now we have probably well over 120 chickens. And we just had eight baby lambs born this year to uh, six ewes. We just got two pigs the other day that we'll be raising, and we have probably a three-quarter acre giant garden, and uh, the boys just spend pretty much like every moment outside just enjoying nature and life, and they absolutely love it. So I think what's fascinating is that when you say, you know, I bought a farm and we moved to a farm, this isn't a hobby, so to speak. It's it's a functioning, self-sustaining farm. This isn't a petting farm or a petting zoo. I mean, you are you are living off the land. Yeah, like the, I have 55 meat chickens that I have to process in about three weeks. And that's a whole day of 
turning them into a nice chicken for the freezer. And it's beautiful to experience and the boys understand kind of the cycles of nature and life and death and how things work. And they really enjoy it. They're okay with it. So much so that, I don't know if it's good or bad, but they named our our two pigs that we have ham and bacon. So, <laughs> Well, they certainly understand then, right? They, they understand do. what it's all about. Yeah. So, and this is not your, <laughs> this is not your, your, your job, so to speak. I'm, you know, doing that in air quotes, you have a full-time career. Yeah. So I'm a high school religion teacher and it's an all boys prep school. There's just about a thousand boys that go here and this is my 17th year teaching and then coaching cross country and track and moderating ultimate Frisbee. And I just help out any way I can, but that's my, that's my full-time gig. Then the farm is kind of like the, I guess from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning and then kind of later at night and then the boys help in between. And being a teacher, I know it's, you know, a passion for you and you, you've seen so much as a teacher, just being involved in your students' lives. Do you think that influenced the decisions you've made when facing this diagnosis and some pretty heavy decisions about what you were going to do with it? Yeah, I definitely did. And I it kind of turned a negative into a, a learning lesson for me, a big teaching lesson where the teacher got taught, so to speak. So I've had the very, very unfortunate incidences of having to go to six funerals of boys that I've taught, and it's it's gut-wrenching, absolutely terrible to see a life cut so short. And I learned from that I never, ever want to have a second-guess a relationship with my kids. You have a choice in life to choose either love or not, and their diagnosis was a time period where I got to sit down and really think about it. And I tell a lot of people where if most people were given a crystal ball in life, they probably want it. The first thing they would probably shake it up and say, what's the lottery tickets for tonight? <laughs> you know, but I don't think most people would want to use that where let's say you get a brand new job and then you shake your crystal ball up and look inside and you're like, what? My boss is going to fire me in two months? Or you fall in love with someone and you're like, you know, how long is our relationship going to last? So, you know, just having a crystal ball of life, it seems pretty attractive. But when push comes to shove, it's way better to live in the present moment. For sure. And, and I and I always say what we have, I think, with a diagnosis is just a wake-up call, right? And And I wish it for other people. I think we all have an expiration date at some point, right? I mean, that's life. And nobody knows when it's coming. And I And I tell my friends that I think, come on, nobody knows what Tomorrow's bringing, literally, it's a cliche, but we're all one phone call, one doctor's appointment, one diagnostic test away from being brought to our knees and understanding the fragility of life and what we've got. And so I know that I've always been really grateful that Duchenne made me super present in the moment every single day. So speaking of being in the moment, I can't imagine your day because you are going nonstop. So I think I get a lot done in, in a day or maybe just even in a week. Some days are better than others for be feeling productive. And Michael, when I when I talk to you, I kind of feel like a slacker. Like, wow, I apparently am, you know, not getting very much done. And and I'm just have I'm just having fun with you because I know this is a choice you've made, but how do you manage your day? What does this look like? I think my years of being like a competitive runner have like primed me for this. So today I got up at 5.05 and I went outside and fed all the animals, but the sun was coming up in the morning and there was this kind of haze coming off of some of the fields that the farmers are preparing next door. And 
it's just like my time to think about the day and what I have to get done and kind of just breathe out and just say thank you for that day. So, you know, I get all that stuff done and then get the boys' lunches already, their bags packed for school. I make them breakfast. I get all of their medications out. I am a single dad and uh, the boys do live full time with me. And uh, my mom's moved in with us. She, um, a few days a week, drops the boys off at school. A lot of times I go grocery shopping at nine or 10 at night and I just tell her like, hey, the boys are in bed. I just got to go run and go grocery shopping. So that's my normal day. If you didn't have all those, you know, weighty responsibilities of being a dad and a professional, you're incredibly dedicated. You're so diligent. I mean, do you ever just fall asleep on the couch like I do when if I sit down or, you know, how do you how do you manage it? How do you recharge? I do. Probably about 50% of the time I wake up at like 2 a.m. and I'm just like on the couch with like a laptop still on my lap and I'm like, oh, how did I get here? (laughs) I have great family and friends. My girlfriend, Danielle, is unbelievable with like helping out with the boys and doing adventures and going places and having an amazing time just doing stuff outside. And I love music. My faith life really helps me out a lot where I mentioned kind of that my morning routine it's kind of like that centering point where you just like, you kind of forget the future, you forget the past, and you're just in that present moment of just like, what's right now? So in the winter, when I'm out there stepping on frozen earth to try to go give these sheep some hay, I'm just experiencing the seasons and nature and how things work. And it just, it brings me such great joy. And I just know that Michael and Reed are part of that whole life process. And so am I. And my faith life always tells me that God never promised us a perfect life. He just promised us a life. So that perfection, I think, is between our ears. Like, what do you see as perfect? So, Yeah. And you and I have talked about that, you know, our perception, right? People will say, why why me? And I always say, why not me? How, how would I ever yeah. think that I would be exempt from heartache and, and struggle? Exactly. That's a good way to look at it. What's your greatest joy on the farm? I would say, well, two of them. One is the challenge personally. Like, I love a challenge. So, like, figuring out how to do everything. Like, a couple weeks ago, I physically had to pull a lamb out of its mom and help birth it. My greatest joy, though, is kind of reliving my childhood and hearing Mikey and Reed yell, Daddy, 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 come over and look at this. (laughs) That's like... I'm on absolute like cloud nine when I hear them where they, the other day they found a hole like with all these worms in it and it was just like euphoria, but they were so excited to share that with me. And I was like, I get to be their like person, like, uh, I gotta describe it. It, it, I'm their, I'm their go-to for that. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about you know, staying present in the moment, as you, you know, you say that's so important. And I know you built this life because you want to do that for your boys, but it's almost like there's a cycle now where, and I, this is a kind of a cheesy metaphor, but you've planted the seeds literally and figuratively now on that farm, but you've planted the seeds of that. And now you're, Mikey and Reed are doing that for you, you know, through their enthusiasm and their love of the land and what you guys do, they're keeping you present in the moment. And I think that's pretty amazing to see your kids doing what you've you've taught them to do. I could talk to you all day about the farm because it's fascinating. And I love how you taught yourself. I mean, people have degrees, you know, in animal husbandry and 
learning how to be expert farmers. And you're just like, nope, I just YouTubed it because I had to do it. And you're slaughtering chickens and, you know, birthing lambs and, you know, growing enough vegetables to feed your whole family and probably the whole neighborhood. But I wanted to ask you this, because as we talk about what led you to this point, and it's this, you know, obviously, catastrophic, you know, gut-wrenching diagnosis where it can break people, really. Some people never come out of it. You know, it, it becomes their way of life. And when I hear you talk about the farm and the choices you've made, there are days that there's so much going on, like I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to forget to feed the dog, right? And I have one and you're running this farm and you have another full-time job. Most people aren't going to buy a farm to deal with a crisis in their life. If it's Duchenne, like you and I share, or if it's another disease, or if it's just a heartache or, you know, some tough, tough breaks, most people aren't going to buy a farm. But I really, I don't think anybody would argue or push back against the notion, what you talk about, about just choosing love. Just choose love. So Michael, for the people like me who aren't going to go buy a farm, what do you think it could mean for other people, people like me, everybody else out there? Like, What else does choose love look like as a philosophy for walking what sometimes is a really difficult path? Sure. So be, being a teacher at an all-boys prep school, the boys are very high-end learners and stuff, and many of them argue over the definition of love with me. And I will, I will die on the hill that I will always say that love is a verb. And you have to be able to say, I love you, but be able to do something that shows it, and you can feel it, and it's substantial. And I remember filling out these forms in pre-K for my kids and it was like a little form that you fill out and you ask them like what's your favorite color what you know what's your favorite food and one of them was how do I know that daddy loves me and at the time that was like right after diagnosis day and I made like a vow I always want people to know that like the kids that I teach, like, I want them to say, like, Mr. Losapio cares about us and why. And, like, they can they can say why because of some action that I've taken. And I feel like anyone can do that. You could live in a tiny little apartment and your kid would know that you love them because of some action, some verb, like, love is a verb. So that's, like, my, that, that's been kind of my philosophy my entire life where, especially with diagnosis, where after Duchenne, of just... I want these boys to know and feel how much I love them. So maybe choosing love is just giving it away, giving it, you know, as the action. I'm inspired all the time by seeing many other rare disease parents, you know, taking their kids on that trip. And unfortunately, the world lost Mr. Hoyt, the uh, gentleman who pushed his kid, towed his kid, bicycled his kid, and all those triathlons all over the world. And, you know, his son had, I believe, cerebral palsy, I think it was. And he just did so much for his kid. And he showed him love by just doing it. And not everybody can run a marathon or do a triathlon, but there's always something you can do. You can show up to your kid's recital you can take off that time of work if you can afford it and just like just to do that's my big philosophy of just just do yep and i love that you brought up dick hoyt i think it's a great point that we can be inspired by people it doesn't mean we have to be them or do the same thing or choose things the same way we could just use it for 
you know, for inspiration and for thought, but find our own way and um, yeah. figure out what we need to do. Yeah, I tell all the kids that I teach that um, what makes all of us the same is that we're all different. So you've just got to find, you yeah. have to find your way. Absolutely. What do you most hope to teach your boys? Well, the one is how to love. I guess that's one one big thing. My biggest fear is that my sons will see their disease as a huge limitation in life. And it's kind of a cliche that, you know, when, when you're real little, you say, well, you can do whatever you want when you grow up. Well, guess what? You can't. Like, not everybody can be president. There's only been over 40. <laughs> so, like, that's not going to happen. I really just want to teach them that they can do other things. Diagnosis defines your medical condition, but it doesn't have to define your entire life. Right. Joseph um, was heading out of middle school into high school, and I knew there were going to be those moments where somebody was going to have a get-together at their house, and how would Joseph go because he can't get his wheelchair up their steps? And there would be times where we'd have rough moments, and in sports always, you know, seems to come up because Joseph loves, he loves sports, and he loves baseball, he loves football. And so I sat him down and I said, buddy, how many boys are on the high school football team or in the program? He said, well, you know, in a good year. I don't know, 50 to 70 or, you know, maybe in the program, an average. And I said, okay, how many? We have, what, 1,600 kids in our high school if we just do some really non-scientific math. And just let's say half of the kids are boys. That's 800 boys are in this high school. And so you're telling me less than 10% or around 10%, give or take, are playing football. So the other 90% are not playing. You're the only boy in your school with Duchenne. So there are a lot of reasons that people aren't playing football. Yes, it might be because they don't want to, but it might be for a lot of other reasons. It might be skills, it might be size, it might be other health issues. So I just love that you talk about it that way. I could not agree more. So I think we learned some hard lessons probably earlier or in a different way than a lot of people do, but I think there's There are universal connections that we have to, it's just parenting. And and I tell Joseph, I'm like, yeah, Duchenne is your thing. That means you're not going to play football. But a lot of other kids have a thing and whatever it is, they have something. And yours is unique to you, but you're not alone in bumps in the road and in struggle and in having to navigate tough times. That's one big lesson I hope for my boys to learn as well is that everybody's got something going on. And in order to like help the rest of humanity, just keep showing more love. Yep. And as much as our boys need help, I always tell Joseph, I'm like, buddy, you have so much to offer. Like you need people, but man, oh man, do people need you too. Oh, that's Whatever you bring to the table. Michael, I'm so grateful to have you here with us. I'm so honored that you're willing to share your heart and your soul really and just your take on things. And I think what you have to say is so powerful And it's not just about Duchenne. I think Duchenne gave you a place to shine and to show it, but I think it's just really your philosophy. And and I'm so grateful that you're willing to wear it on your sleeve and share it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it. And be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org.